Hi there, and thank you so much for tuning in to Asking for a Friend, a podcast that covers all those topics relating to sex, intimacy, and relationships that you might feel a little too embarrassed to ask about. I'm your host, Katrina Barfard, and I'm a clinical sexologist, psychotherapist, and sexuality researcher. Just a warning, this podcast may contain conversations of a sexual nature, and so if there are little ones around, it's best for you to turn off and listen later. Welcome back to Asking for a Friend and to season two of the podcast. I've really missed this space, but it's important for us all to have a little break from information overload at times, and especially at times like this when most of the world is in the grip of the second wave of COVID-19. But I have been so excited to share this conversation with you today, as it's a topic I find utterly fascinating, and one that is emerging as particularly interesting in the mental health field. And my guest on today's show is Tobias Penno. Tobias is an emotional health practitioner and social worker based in Perth, Australia. After years of professionally managing extreme child, family and relationship stress, he has found his passion in healing emotional pain and trauma through the body. He's a researcher at the University of Western Australia with an award-winning dissertation titled How Ayahuasca Offers Psychosocial Wellbeing. And he's also currently working on a PhD researching the links between attachment trauma, the body, and best practice in psychedelic integration therapy. I just want to say that I don't condone the use of any substances recreationally. And despite my fascination and interest in the latest research around this topic, this episode is not about encouraging substance use. This is about science and research and how we can use these substances to work with mental health difficulties going forward. This episode is sponsored by Desir, South Africa's leading sexual health and wellness store. Desir believes that sexual health is not just about the latest sex toy, but also about using great products to improve one's overall sexual health and well-being. For 15% off, use the code for a friend. Tobias, I have been looking forward to chatting to you for quite some time, and I have told a couple of people that I was going to speak to you, and already there was a lot of interest. You know, I don't even know where we should start, because I think this is such an immense area and, and, and topic, and maybe we can just start with what got you interested um, in this field. You know, what, what has taken you on this journey, and, and how has it gone for you? Mm, yeah, sure. That's a, it's a big question because I feel like I, I have been interested in the area of psychedelics and the broader area of, of healing and therapy for such a long time. And that would go back to, you know, back in year 10 high school when I first came across um, a book about Buddhism. And, and I read that and I was just so fascinated by these Eastern philosophical concepts and and then I started to think about our Western way of life and um, particularly through my teen years and uh, through early university, I saw a lot of people go through tremendous difficulty with uh, mental health problems. And in particular, I, I had a, um, one of my brother's friends actually um, took his own life and watching the group of friends around that particular tragedy and how they came together around that time to kind of 
help each other and support each other. And the, the level of love that they showed for each other was astonishing and really touching. And I watched that and it sometimes felt as though um, that I, I wondered if a tragedy like that could be avoided, you know, for other people, if we lived in a culture that had more of that love and that nurture and that support. And I, I felt that there was something askew in our social fabric when I saw that happen. And that, that's kind of what brought me into the field of social work, you know, wanting to work at that, uh, not just the psychological level with people on, on an individual basis, but also the broader kind of psychosocial level um, and looking at how we can uh, heal our social fabric. And so I was about halfway through my degree in social work when I traveled to South America for a 10 month trip, cruising around um, the USA and then in the South of South America. And it was then that somebody introduced me to this thing called ayahuasca. And they kind of caught my attention. You know, I was studying social work. I was interested in healing and Buddhism and alternative kind of ways of working with mental health. And I approached it with that very kind of scientific mindset. I was like, oh, okay, there's this, this medicine that people talk about that could help people. I may as well just go and try it myself so I can see firsthand, you know, does this have some validity to it, some merit to it? Um, and off I went with a, a friend who I'd made, a guy called Jared over in, in South America. He offered to take me to a place um, called the Sacred Valley where they hosted these ceremonies with a lot of ritual and a lot of process and structure around it. And I drank ayahuasca for the first time. That was back in 2015. And, you know, up until that point in my life, I think there was always this propensity for depression, I would say. And to some extent, a little bit of a, a victim mindset that came along with that and that, that was connected to that. And in this one night, this one sitting that I had, that part of me was, I dare say, excised from my system. It, it was absolutely astounding to me. It was shown to me very directly what that was. And then it felt like a part of me died in that evening. And I came out of that ceremony feeling like a completely different person. And, you know, from that day moving forward, I could almost say with confidence that I, I would never feel the, the sort of tendrils of depression wrap around me again. Um, and so that was a really life-changing experience. And, and ever since then, my journey has been, you know, one of, of passionately kind of inquiring about these medicines, how they work and, and all that sort of stuff. So that led me to write my master's dissertation in 2016 on the topic of ayahuasca. Um, and then since then, I've kind of been keeping abreast of the research. Now I'm writing a PhD and I've, I've started a business where I offer people the kind of preparatory and integration support if they're choosing to kind of go down this route to treat their own mental health issues. So yeah, that's, that's more or less the, the short version of, of my story of coming into psychedelic research. The, the short version of your own history. Wow. And there's so much, <laughs> <laughs> it's a good title for the book, actually. Um, there's, there's so much there both personally and professionally that's fascinating me. I mean, from, you know, personal tragedy for for your your brother and you know for you seeing that group of friends lose a friend of theirs to mental health difficulties to recognizing your own battles with depression um to 
I mean, I'm not sure it sounded like you perhaps went into the experience um, with your friend Jared out of a lot of curiosity because of your already established curiosity into spirituality and healing and connection and then how that's translated into your work. I mean, it sounds like such a natural progression that you followed to explore this, I think, often really misunderstood um, topic. And I mean, if I say the word psychedelics, I know that most listeners are probably going to be thinking like party. They're probably going to think drugs. They're probably going to think altered state of mind. I don't think most people may hear psychedelics and think healing and think, you know, mental health, um, maybe not even sex. And so I, I wondered what's been your experience in the research that you've been doing in meeting people who hold those, those biases to this area that you've, you know, both personally and professionally delved into. Yeah, well, I think um, an important thing to, to be aware of is, is the history, you know, of psychedelics here. And when you go back to when LSD first kind of became well known across the world, when it was synthesized by Albert Hoffman in the 19, I think, 50s, right, the first thing that happened with LSD was that it was sent to all of the medical schools around the world. And, and they were trialing it for the use of treatment like with alcohol addiction and other mental health disorders. They, there was this epic clinic where they were trying to work with complex PTSD using LSD. Um, it, it was initially first discovered and used in a medical environment and it was only later on that the kind of youth of the 1970s got a hold of these drugs and started to use them in a lot more um, reckless ways and, you know, caused themselves some genuine harm. And also at the time there was, you know, the political landscape was the, this, um, was, there was the, the youth counterculture, which was viewed as this threat to the kind of normal way of life in the USA. And so when you combine that kind of counterculture, um, youth rebellion with the genuine kind of traumas that might have been experienced in that time, the US at the time decided to just completely ban all of these substances. Um, and so unfortunately, all of the trials that were underway at the time got shut down and weren't able to be followed through completely. And we, and we never really got to find out exactly how helpful these drugs could be to treat mental health issues up until more recently where they have now been um, brought back in onto the scene and there's a, this massive psychedelic renaissance which is happening. So I think that the stigma comes from that history. Um, but when you start to look at that history a little bit more carefully, you realise that, that these drugs actually were originally intended as medicines. And also when you look at the tribal cultures that have been using them for hundreds or thousands of years, the way that they use them was also with this healing intention. And it's only more modern kind of uses and recreational uses that, ha um, that have kind of led to this stigma. I've seen it um, in some documentaries that I've watched because I'm quite fascinated by this topic. And the, I, I almost, I don't know if it's perhaps the incorrect use of the term, but the cultural appropriation of a quite sacred practice um, has, has caused quite a lot of, what's the right word to use? Quite a lot of um, disruption, should I say, or, or, or distress among 
indigenous communities in South America where they've got tourists coming in to do, you know, to drink ayahuasca with a shaman, where it's used as a, you know, money-making scheme rather than as the sacred ritual. I don't know if you've got any thoughts on that, if that's something that's, it's, it's kind of, because you mentioned, you know, different, different plants coming from Africa, from South America, and how this has probably always been something that's sacred to a particular culture or tribe or community. Yeah, yeah, that's such a, a big topic. Um, ayahuasca tourism is huge. And, and people are, you know, sort of people who from that area know just enough to create this particular brew, which is ayahuasca, um, are going ahead and doing that without really going through the proper training to become a shaman and then offering that to tourists, you know, as a way to make money. And all of the prestige that comes with it as well of being, you know, a shaman um, and offering people these healing experiences. So there's a, there's a, it's, um, it's a very messy and at some, at times very dark kind of place. Um, and so, you know, for, for people who are interested in taking ayahuasca and going to a place like South America, I think that that's a really important thing to bear in mind is how can you pay respect to that culture? And also how can you keep yourself safe? Because there are people who are out there to, to kind of take what they want from you um, and don't have the respect for the, the culture and the tradition that it comes from. That's, that's a really, really helpful um, way of looking at it and some really good advice for it and um, for, for approaching it. And then I guess something that you you know, I've heard you speak about before is in your work, in the preparation and the integration of people's experiences. I think I've heard from, from, uh, you know, people that I know personally, where they've gone to do, you know, a ayahuasca retreat in South Africa or in the UK, gosh, anywhere. Um, Because, you know, a group of friends were going and they thought they'd all go do it together. And they go and they have quite an intense experience and they really gain a deeper understanding and connection with themselves and then that ends and that's it and they carry on as if they've never done anything. So what do you think goes wrong there with people who go with, with good intentions to go and, and experience this very healing process and then come back to the real world, and so to speak, everyday life and nothing changes for them. It just carries on. Life carries on. Mm, mm, that's a, that's a really good question. So, you know, the, um, the kinds of retreats that people go to in South America where they drink ayahuasca, um, when you go to a, a, a really nice one, one that does pay respect to the culture and one where they're genuinely interested in looking after you and making sure that you have a positive experience, you might go and you might join this um, retreat with 15 other people, say, for example, where you're kind of living in a very simple way and you're eating a very simple diet and you're kind of living in these little huts all around right next to each other. You've got ongoing support from the shaman and possibly even, you know, a trained psychologist. Um, and you're kind of embedded in this, I dare say, temporary community, right, where it's not just the ayahuasca that is providing the healing. It's also that, that exposure to this community of people, um, as temporary as it may be, that is part of that healing process, seeing what other people are going through, seeing yourself in them and being held and supported in that space, 
over a period of two or three weeks. And so I think, you know, what they're trying to set up in these retreats is, is the same kind of community that um, traditionally supported ayahuasca. You know, in its, in its traditional environment, the shaman would deliver, you know, these experiences with people who lived in a culture that fully supported and understood what ayahuasca was. It was a part of their life. So they could go away, they could talk to different people from their community about their experiences, and it was all very understood. It was held by that community. Whereas in, in the West, um, that, that's not true at all. People don't know what this drug is. They don't really understand what this change process is, and it's not really supported uh, in that way. So sometimes when people have this temporary experience of this beautiful community and connection and healing, and then they come back to their home environment, that can be quite a jarring dis um, juxtaposition. And so there's, the, there's that kind of culture shock that makes it hard to integrate the meaning of those experiences. And then on top of that, I think, you know, um, what the research is kind of saying these days is, is uh, and for, uh, I think people have kind of known this all along, is that the, the drugs are kind of offering a temporary neuroplasticity, like a, a window of opportunity where you can make changes at a more uh, higher pace and you can sort of set new defaults for your brain, your neurobiology. But it is just this small window of opportunity. Um, one, one analogy that is often used is that of like a snowplow. So, you know, on your, on your day-to-day -day life, you're like a skier going down a track. And perhaps you've got some several well-grooved tracks, which are your kind of defaults or your norms. And it's much easier to ski down those grooves in the ski slope. And when you take a, a psychedelic like ayahuasca or psilocybin, it's as if a snowplow has come along and kind of groomed the track and not completely got rid of those grooves, those defaults, but it's kind of cleared, cleared it and flattened it so that there is now opportunity to create new grooves, right? But if you don't take that opportunity to create those new grooves, and that is an active process, you need to really um, create new normals in your life, new ways of, of being in the world, new behaviors, um, then you will kind of revert back to those old groups. So there's, yeah, there's a number of different reasons. One is the, the culture shock. You know, it's just such a jarring change process that um, people don't know how to integrate that effectively and they don't have the support to do so. Uh, and then there's also this kind of neurobiological process which is going on where it, it is just a temporary a window of opportunity but then requires those, yeah, behavioural changes that, that sustain the uh, changes that you might or the insights that you might have gleaned from from medicine um, experiences your explanations are so incredibly clear and easy to make sense of and um that that ski slope analogy um i love and i use i use one similarly about a path in a forest in the exact same way i love the way you've described that because it makes it so clear about how you know we have a predetermined neural pathway that it's a learnt neural pathway from childhood or from a traumatic experience. And that, that path is there and our brain just automatically wants to default to that path all the time because that's all it knows. That's the path it can see the, the path of least resistance quite literally. Um, and I love the way that you described how, how this process and engaging 
in using something like psychedelics can help us just smooth everything out so that we can have access and other opportunities or other options to other pathways or to create other pathways. Doesn't mean that that original path goes away. It just means that there's option to create alternative pathways. And I think that that's such a lovely way um, to make sense of it. So the, the healing process, that's something that's obviously really fascinated you. And could you just dive into, into it a little bit about how you, you utilize um, this in your work with your clients and with what kind of difficulties that they might be facing? So as I said, yeah, I, the work that I do is with preparation and integration of these experiences because it's not yet legal to actually offer or administer psychedelics in any way um yeah i'm not offering that kind of thing and you know my approach is kind of underscored by uh, harm minimization or and or benefit optimization um and i really you know first of all just want to make sure that my clients uh, are going to be as safe as possible um, given what we do know and what we don't know about these substances, and also given what they do know and don't know about the people that are offering them um, and the kind of spaces they might be walking into when they, when they take them. So, yeah, first of all, I try to support people to, to be safe. Um, and then in terms of preparation, uh, I really like to work, you know, in a normal way, traditional kind of therapy, get to know them, get to understand their history, um, I, you know, I'm a bit of an eclectic therapist, like so many of us are and draw from different models, like your internal family systems, your cognitive behavioral therapy, um, those kinds of normal therapeutic processes to kind of get to know a client and get to understand what's going on for them. And I think that in and of itself, just traditional talk therapy is a really useful context and language to understand oneself before one then goes into a psychedelic experience where often things are very symbolic and it's not always clear what it has meant. But if you've done some work around yourself and you have a language and a context of understanding that you've gained from talk therapy, then that will really help you to understand your experience and approach it with um, greater insight. So I do that. Um, and then I also like to work with the body. So, you know, and, and that is a very gentle process because um, people's nervous systems are often in a state of, of distress and it takes time to start to familiarise the, the, them with myself, first of all, and the space that we're um, co-constructing in, in the therapeutic kind of dynamic. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, I work very gently with the body, but I do like to kind of really train people up with some body-based somatic skill set before they go into psychedelic spaces. You know, it's something even as like the most simple thing is diaphragmatic breath. You know, most of us go about our days, uh, even if we're sitting in an office, you know, and, and our body is kind of calm and we're in a calm environment, there's no immediate threat. We're not breathing into our diaphragm. We're breathing using our sort of secondary breathing muscles, which are usually only supposed to be engaged when we are in a kind of, when we're exercising or we're, when we're in some kind of serious danger and we need that extra oxygen and power to kind of, uh, to, to be at our, at our use. Um, and so I really like to just start with something like that and get people diaphragmatic breathing 
it's it's such a simple body-based marker of when you're you are in distress or not if you can't breathe into your diaphragm then that's probably a sign that your body is in some kind of distress and uh, um and that can be a really powerful anchor for somebody when they're in a psychedelic experience suddenly they might be you know thrown into revisiting some really dark part of their life in their history and that can be really overwhelming and difficult um, and so having a tool that can anchor you to your body in the here and now like breath work is is really powerful so I'll, I'll do a fair bit of that with people in the lead up to try and get them kind of trained up and ready for that kind of experience yeah so that's that's mostly what I do in the prep that's the prep part and I mean you you mentioned different types of therapeutic approaches. I'm an eclectic therapist just like you are. And I, I kind of take the same approach to, to treating sexual difficulties that you do to, you know, the, the, the mental health difficulties, lifestyle difficulties, whatever it might be that one of your clients is facing. I think that the somatic work is so underutilized um, in the therapy space, in the, in the psychology world. Um, and I know personally the benefits of breathing. And, and as you pointed out, you know, when we're, when we're sitting at our desk, we're, we're actually breathing in a way that's activating our parasympathetic nervous system. So our body is just in constantly a state of fight or flight. The adrenaline is pumping and we're not actually getting enough air into our body to slow everything down. And the power of that in itself and teaching somebody a, a really easy to access, completely free, um, you know, coping strategy before they go into their experience um, using psychedelics and then come back to you for the integration, I think is, it's so important, right? We want to give our clients tools to have in their toolbox to be able to manage and cope with the way that they're feeling rather than trying to avoid and get rid of their feelings. So what then is, well, we know that that's, that's about standard for human beings, right? Let's just get rid of my feelings instead of feeling them. Um, that's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Continue. No. So what about integration? I mean, what, what does the integration stage look like for you with your clients? Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a good question. I, I, I just, I got stuck on something that you said before about feeling our feelings. I often talk to my clients about this kind of concept of connection versus function. And the way I see it, we live in a culture that prioritizes function over connection. And when I say connection, I, I mean connection to oneself, to one's emotions, to um, the people around us. We, we prioritize function over that. And so um, especially when you start to engage with the body, you know, embodiment practices are so about, you know, getting smack dab in the middle of life and actually feeling your feelings and really being with them. I have to almost caveat that with people and say, this isn't necessarily going to make you feel better. Yeah. You know, you're not going to go from A to B where A was feeling depressed, B is feeling happy. You know, there's going to be this process where when you start to feel your body and notice it, it it's probably going to bring things up and it's going to be uncomfortable. And so we're actually choosing to prioritize going into that discomfort and really feeling it. Um, and that can be difficult and it often gets worse before it gets better. Uh, so anyway, I just, I just wanted to drop that because I really feel that that paradigm working fits really well with, with psychedelics. And it's something that the shamans of, of the various cultures often say um, is that, 
you know, it's going to get worse before it gets better mm. when you start to engage in these medicines. Um, but to answer your actual question about integration, um, so integration is, you know, it's a broad word and it's kind of like, okay, how do we use the insights that we've gained and the experiences that we've had to actually make life changes that, that lead us to this place that we want to get to in our life. So a part of it is for me about helping somebody to develop a self-practice, you know, upskilling them with something that they can do on a daily basis. You know, I might work with them to kind of construct a daily self-practice where they get in touch with their body in some way every morning, say, even if, if it's only for 10 minutes and they might connect with certain parts of the experience that they had with the psychedelic, um, whether they connect with the, you know, they might've had for the first time in their life, like a, a moment in, in a psychedelic experience where they experience self-love and self-compassion, which kind of until that point in time was a rather inaccessible feeling. And so part of the self-practice might have an embodiment component, but it also might have this um, component of connecting with the, that experience, connecting with if they can't cultivate, for example, that self-compassion in the moment of that, of that morning, instead they might, just try to access the memory of, of feeling that self-compassion while they were under the influence. And so just trying to cultivate that in any way they can and bringing that into some kind of daily practice. So there's, there's a self-practice component. And then there's, of course, the behaviour change and just kind of supporting them to talk out, you know, how are they actually going to um, change their life that now supports the experiences that they've had with psychedelics, whether it be having difficult conversations with certain people or, um, yeah, changing their work, changing their patterns around drug use and addiction, all of those kinds of things, you know, the practical side of it. Yeah. So integration is, is a complex process and, um, yeah, I really just try to work with people to, to, um, support that change that they want to make in their life. And, and I, I guess I could, the, the word accountability comes to mind as well. You help them get, you know, you help them gain some form of accountability to continue on this healing journey. It's not just, you know, you came to do the preparation for me, you went off and you had this healing experience and then that's it. There's actually accountability to take what they've learned about themselves, what they've discovered, what's been revealed further and you, it sounds like you do that in a really easy to, to kind of um, easy to, to understand as well as easy to implement way. I think people we know from, from practicing as therapists that people really thrive off the practical. They like practical. So it's so interesting to hear that that process that you undertake with the clients, um, you know, who are, who are going on this journey with the preparation and the integration, there's so much curiosity that's involved there's so much um about permission to lean into the discomfort to explore you know to Brene Brown the shit out of yourself as I like to say to my clients if they know who Brene Brown is <laughs> you know, really lean into that vulnerability um mm -hmm. and and really to help them to be accountable to continue on the journey and not just let it end when they when they leave the retreat and I think there's a lot of there's a lot of beauty in that um, therapeutically. So, so obviously this is a sex podcast. So let, let's talk a little bit about sex um, and psychedelics. <laughs> let's change that completely. Like where should we even start when it comes to this topic? 
Well, I think, you know, as I was saying to you earlier, um, before we actually started the podcast, that the, the field of psychedelics is going through this epic renaissance and it is very exciting. And we're kind of testing the waters on a number of different things. You know, psilocybin for depression seems to be showing great promise. Ayahuasca for depression, ketamine for depression. Um, and anxiety and PTSD, and in particular, the one that seems to have made that made the most headway in terms of clinical trials is MDMA uh, for treating PTSD. Um, and part of that is using MDMA to treat PTSD, which has come from um, sexual abuse and things like that. So, a part of this conversation is is how can we actually use these substances to heal trauma that's associated with sexuality? And then another part of this conversation is about uh, how can we use these substances more proactively to enhance our sex life and to kind of cultivate deeper intimacy experiences with our, with our partners. Um, where would you like to start out of those two? <laughs> wow. Let, let's, let's talk a little bit about deepening, deepening our experience of sex um, and intimacy with our partners. And the reason I'd like to start there is I, I mean, my poor clients must be so sick of hearing me use these lines, but it is about pleasure, not performance and permission, not, not performance. So when I'm, I'm working with somebody individually or working with a couple. I try to help them unlearn and re rewire the way that they view sex. I mean, a lot of people have misconceptions about what sex therapists do for a living. And, and the majority of our work is about helping people challenge their pre-existing belief systems they, they, they have in relation to sex. So very often when I'm working with my clients, I'm, I'm getting them to unlearn what they've already learned. And what they've learned is we could call like the standard model of sexual response, you know, the linear step-by-step mm. process, the Masters and Johnson model, which um, you might be familiar with. I don't know if my listeners are, but that looks at essentially, it, it was from two researchers in the 1950s and 60s, uh, well, right up until the 90s, who looked, who did research into human sexual response and decided that we went through four you know, linear steps. We experience desire, then arousal, then orgasm, and then um, kind of recovery or, you know, um, refraction as it's called in men. And sex is not actually mm -hmm. like that. It doesn't happen step one, step two, step three, step four, and then it's done. And unfortunately, I spend a lot of time uh, helping people to unlearn that model of sex. So the reason I wanted to start with the diving into a deeper consciousness, if we could say that, with sex is because that's what I'm trying to get across to my clients, that it's not all about the orgasm. It's not even about getting aroused. It's about, well, physically, it's about emotional, psychological arousal and connection. So where, where do we bring in psychedelics to help us deepen the experience that we have with sex and shift it from being an, a, a, an experience where we focus on performance and pleasing our partner to one of actual pleasure and permission to experience that pleasure? Yeah. Oh, such a good question. Um, you know, the, the standard model of sex is, is so prevalent and it's all that so many people know. And for a lot of men, it's, um, you know, 10 minutes, a bit like a, a jackhammer, uh, and then it's done, you know, and that's all there is to sex. Um, and, you know, it, interestingly, like for me as a, as a man, um, one of the 
big influences that psychedelics had was not actually from the psychedelic itself, but rather from the behavior that I was asked to do in the lead up to a psychedelic experience. So whenever people drink ayahuasca, they're often asked to do this thing called a dieta, which is essentially a diet. Um, but it's a diet in a broader sense than just food. So you might restrict certain foods, but you'll also not watch TV or, you know, um, read certain things. And um, you're also asked not to engage in any sexuality. Um, and as a man in particular, not to ejaculate. And so around that time was the first time that I had consciously gone, oh, I'm going to just refrain from ejaculating for a period of time. And it was only then that I started to notice what a profound impact that that, uh, that refraining had on, on my experience of sexuality and my experience of life. So there's just something really interesting about um, that that I'd love to, to talk into a little bit more, you know, in particular around the standard model, which for men is often that, you know, that, that we need to ejaculate or that, um, that ejaculating once a day or a few times a week is normal, it's fine, and it doesn't really make any difference to us in our sex life. Um, but I think what, you know, what we're starting to learn now is that actually to change that habit and to change what is normal can have a, a huge, a drastic influence on our sex life. Um, and so, yeah, I, I guess I, I started to get exposed to those ideas from the behavior that was being asked of me before a psychedelic experience. Um, but then also the experiences that I've had on psychedelics have, have influenced my sexuality. And you know, I, I find that when I'm under the influence of a psychedelic, that sensory experiences, moment-to-moment um, -moment experiences, just looking at a plant, um, and I suspect it's to do with that, you know, neurobiology that we were talking about before, the snowplow has come through and your default mode is, is a little bit not there anymore and you're seeing the world through the eyes almost of, of a child, like with this fresh perspective and you're drinking it in with a lot more curiosity and so that that curiosity and that um playfulness and interest in in the sensory experience of life i think really lends itself to engaging in sexual practices that are like that that are more about the the intimacy and the sensory experiences aren't, and aren't a hundred percent about getting to that final outcome of coming or ejaculating. So I think, yeah, that psychedelics can, can really help with, with that in that way. Um, yeah. So those three words, um, curiosity, playfulness, and sort of sensory experience, sensation, sensuality, they, they tick all the boxes for me when it comes to what I want, to help people achieve sexually because mm. if we're not curious sexually, um, we, we get bored, sexual boredom, we face sexual difficulties, we make assumptions about our partner and their experience. If we're not playful, sex can become quite distressing emotionally. It can feel like a chore. It can feel like something we're only doing because we feel like we have to do it. And if we're not focusing on sensations, if it's all about, you know, getting, get, getting it on, getting it up and that's it, moving on, then we miss out on so much of the journey. I always say to my clients, like, what about the journey? I know the destination is, is where you want to get to, orgasm in this case. But what about the journey? What, how could you enjoy the journey more? And yes. I guess, you know, that's something that you're saying too, is like, just 
stop and smell the roses, quite literally. Take it all in. And when you've experienced sex while using psychedelics, it, it, you, you're forced into that mindset of just stopping and smelling the roses, of engaging in, in playfulness, in, sense, in, in sensory experiences where it's all about pleasure. It's not about performance. But I do have to say mm. that, that while you were sharing this, a thought was coming to my mind. And I guess my, my concern is I've worked with quite a lot of clients who, who engage in chemsex. And for, for my listeners who don't understand what that is, it's where somebody will use um, a substance, a drug, or psychedelic, whatever it might be, to alter their, their state of mind and only feel comfortable or, uh, or seek out sex when they're in that state. And then when they're sober, sex doesn't reach that same level of arousal. It doesn't meet their sexual needs. And so they constantly seek out that substance, that drug, in order to experience that, that heightened state of mind, altered state of mind, should I say, and therefore can engage sexually. So while you were talking, I was worrying uh, or just thinking to myself and having a worried thought about what if someone's listening to this and thinks, well, I should just do psychedelics, you know, and then my sex life will be fine. What, what would you say then to somebody who about this in the sense of like, oh, that's the answer to all of my questions? Mm, I think that's a, that's a good point, you know, and I, I think that's where um, my perspective of, of psychedelics or plant medicines as being teachers is a useful way of thinking about it because, uh, you know, I don't really engage with sex under the influence of psychedelics anymore. Um, or if I do, it's very, very rarely. Right, and that's because I've had experiences with psychedelics where I've learned things about myself, about my body, and about my relationship um, that have enabled me to then um, engage with intimacy and sexual practices that that meet all the needs that I have around that, outside of needing a psychedelic. So, you know, I think that again, it's about that kind of window of opportunity when you're under an influence of something like that. You have a window of opportunity to learn something about yourself, which you can then take away and and implement into your life. Um, and I think something that really excites me about that is that, and there is this sort of, I guess, spiritual component to to what's available. You know, and I think. Aside from getting playful and curious with sexuality and, and enjoying the sensory experience, there is this whole other um, thing which is available to us when we start to engage with sex differently. And that's a, uh, this sort of spiritual, emotional um, union kind of uh, experience that's available with a partner that really supports, you know, long-term partnership. Um, and I'm just thinking about, you know, uh, the practices of, of sublimation for men and sort of tantric practices around sexuality where you can kind of like, it's, it's, I guess it's an energetic thing, right? You can start to engage in an energetic way with a partner where you're, because you're not attached to the outcome of reaching the climax and the orgasm, you're going to sit in the, the beginning phase a lot more comfortably and you're going to ease into it and you're going to build that, that pressure, build that energy and that chemistry and that intimacy slowly. And, you know, paradoxically, by not having this really strong attachment to the outcome of orgasm, you're then able to build the pleasure and the intimacy to a state where the, the, the state while you're in the middle of sex is 
way higher in terms of pleasure and way higher in terms of intimacy than the peak that was available in the old way of, of doing it. And so if you're approaching it with that slower kind of playful approach um, and you're, you're building it up, then, then you can have these really incredible experiences of intimacy. Um, I, I kind of like to think about it as uh, lovemaking versus pleasure-making. And, and the reason that I, I use those terms is because, you know, in the traditional or the standard narrative, pleasure can often get prioritised over love and over connection and intimacy. And so this, this other way of engaging with people, suddenly you're kind of shifting out of that normal way where it's all about the pleasure and you're starting to also be inclusive of the intimacy and the love. Uh, and that might mean that sometimes you pause for a moment, you know, and you actually stop or you slow right down and you get in touch with your breath and your body um, and, and it becomes this whole process and yeah i think that when you start to engage in that way the, the experiences that are available are so much more colorful and deeper in terms of the intimacy that you can have with a partner and i think from an energetic perspective when you're starting especially if you know if you're starting to play with moving energy through the body and you know whether you choose to believe in kind of energy that's moving through the body or you just choose to understand it in a more biological way where it's tension responses in the body that are kind of getting shifted right and moved and emotional distress that's that's getting shifted through the body um both of those are kind of available and and that can lead to some really profound experiences of, of healing as well as deeper intimacy healing you know trauma around sexuality uh trauma around your body and and things like that and i think that um psychedelics could could help with that energetic aspect of it as well because there's this heightened kind of visceral sensation of our bodies which is often available when we're under the influence of psychedelics which then enables us to be a, even more carefully attuned to what is happening in our body when we're engaging in the sexual encounter and also what is happening to our partner's body when they're engaging with the sexual encounter so that that sort of heightened attunement allows for a, a i guess a, a more um, nuanced somatic kind of um, dance that's going on between two people when they're in the lovemaking encounter. Um, and once you've had that experience, I think, you, and you've had, you, you've had exposure to that and you, and you have attuned to that, then that's, you've had the, um, you've had your lesson, right. From the, you know, a teacher. And now you can take away with that and you can engage with those practices without using any substances and things like that. Yeah, I think that that makes a lot of sense because just that last part when you kind of summed that up, that was what was going through my mind. So you, much like with the therapy that you offer with clients who are facing difficulties and you do the preparation and integration with them and they continue on their journey once they've had um, their experience with, you know, whichever psychedelic they're having, sex is, you know, you can utilize it in the same way that it's, it's a, an experience you can have that can teach you something. It's almost like it opens doors. It, it broadens your horizon when it comes to your sexual experience, to sexual sensations, to the connection you can have with your partner. And once those doors are opened, you're able to continue to explore what's behind each door without the need for having those psychedelics. So again, that word curiosity comes up for me. Um, and the playfulness that can come from exploring that with somebody or perhaps even on your own. I speak a lot 
to my clients, um, particularly men, about you know changing the way that they masturbate from again just being about the penis and uh, touching the penis until they reach ejaculation and 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 um, they climax to being a much more holistic, sensual experience for them, which is not something that the majority of men have ever been taught. And I love the way that you describe that love making versus pleasure making because I think that that really makes a lot of sense in what it is you've been explaining. And I guess, look, when I'm thinking about what gets in the way sexually, um, obviously as a Mm. psychosexual therapist, I'm thinking of anxiety, I'm thinking of depression, you mentioned trauma. And I'm doing so much work with my clients on their mental health difficulties that they're facing, the experiences that they're having. And, you know, I've got clients who are on antidepressants and anti-anxieties medication because they're struggling with some mental health stuff. Um, Do you have to speak to clients about the medications that they're on if they're going to undertake this therapy? I mean, you spoke about that diet, that lifestyle, you know, being clean in terms of your body, your mind, sexually, you know, medication, something that have to stop too if somebody's going to engage with psychedelics? Yes. Yeah, definitely. Um, most of the antidepressants are contraindicated with, with most, uh, all of the psychedelics, um, because they're acting on the serotonin system of the brain. And so you really don't want to have these two, con- um, two different inputs, um, because the, the psychedelic might undermine the effectiveness of the uh, antidepressant. The antidepressant might make the psychedelic a, a different kind of experience altogether. And then there's also the more adverse risks of things like serotonin syndrome. Um, and so, uh, yeah, if somebody is interested in taking psychedelics, I will kind of let them know about those risks and encourage them to talk to their psychiatrist, you know, and even have an open discussion with their psychiatrist about their intentions to take a psychedelic. Um, and if they feel that the time is right for them to kind of shift off their, you know, uh, current medications, then I kind of, I won't encourage them to do that, but I'll, I'll support them if that's the decision that they've made for themselves and encourage them to have that conversation with their, their psychiatrist as well. So I actually am working with a few clients at the moment who are currently on antidepressant medication for depression and or anxiety. Uh, and they're weaning themselves off with the support of their psych- psychiatrist as well as my support, both because they want to be off the antidepressants firstly, and also because they're curious to try these, these alternative medicines. Mm. And, and I mean, I, I, I don't favor most antidepressants because they have a very negative effect on our sexual functioning. They can alter mm. our ability to reach orgasm. Um, they can decrease our, our desire to be sexual. I mean, they overall can just have a negative effect and again, it comes back to coping skills and mindset for me, um, coping skills for our emotions and our, our kind of distressing thoughts and, and a shift in mindset in engaging our mind in a much more useful, helpful way sexually. Um, and so when it comes to, you know, uh, when it comes to the approach I take with my clients, I'm I'm a, a holistic practitioner in that it's, it's not like, oh, okay, you have erectile dysfunction, so let's get you some Viagra. I'm not that kind of practitioner. I like to approach it holistically. And there are, of course, like, you know, as you've just mentioned, clients who are, are on medication because that is what's been working for them, but then realize that perhaps that's time, there's time for a change and they want to try something new. And maybe that it's a good segue into 
just I wanted to just touch on MDMA and the the use of MDMA to treat post traumatic stress because I know that there are a lot of studies coming out about that now or some some studies being done about that because we well in my profession I know in yours too trauma is gosh you know if we could just resolve the world's um, childhood <laughs> abuse trauma issues we would have a much happier adult population. Um, more highly functioning adult population as well. Um, trauma is, is, is a huge topic and we just don't have the time and capacity to get into it today, but how are, how are psychedelics being utilized to treat trauma? Mm, that's such a good question. Um, and trauma is so, oh, it's so deeply connected with sexuality as well. Um, and it's so interesting, you know, to start to explore our own bodies and the ways that they move into contraction, you know, when we start to engage in, in, um, in sex. Um, and I guess I just want to kind of say that for people who have experienced trauma, you know, engaging with these medicines can be a very, you know, challenging and difficult and big kind of experience. And you'd really want to make sure that you are in a safe container um, to do that kind of thing. And you'd especially want to be really careful about engaging with a medicine like this with your partner and having sex under that medicine, you know, without um, inadvertently re-traumatizing yourself or them through that experience because one's sense of boundaries and things like that can often be quite softened when you're under the influence of these medicines. So I think that's just a, an important caveat to kind of put in there. Um, but in terms of MDMA and its use for post-traumatic stress disorder, I mean, I think it's such a, a fascinating area. I'm particularly excited for the future of MDMA for couples therapy and sexual therapy, like what you're doing. You know, imagine, uh, I could imagine somebody like you having MDMA as like a tool in your toolkit, you know, that you could use in the right circumstances with clients to support them to resolve, you know, um, trauma from their childhood um, and also to work on the relationship that's before them and how those two are connected because they so often are. So um, I think it's really interesting. Something I'd like to say is that um, I was listening to a podcast recently with Bessel van der Kolk, you know, the author mm. of The Body Keeps the Score. Absolutely. And he's kind of one of the lead researchers over in the US where they're in their phase three of clinical trials to use uh, using MDMA to treat PTSD. And he kind of announced on that podcast that um, what they're finding in their research, which they didn't know until rather recently, was that um, MDMA appears to be just as effective for treating PTSD as um, for complex early childhood trauma, which is quite a surprise you know, and, and a wonderful surprise because PTSD, you know, often can be I dare say more simple in some ways because of that kind of it, it, it's from a particular trauma, a single or maybe a couple of moments that have happened that really um, um, challenged our nervous system, overwhelmed our nervous system. Maybe someone was in a car accident um, or something like that. And then so working with that is, is one thing. But then when somebody has experienced kind of early complex trauma, that trauma has been, you know, uh, influential in shaping their personality and in a lot of ways can be a lot deeper and so the, the the fact that or the the report that mdma is is just as effective for that as well is really quite quite exciting i think 
I think that that is fascinating. And I mean, I have admired and loved Bessel van der Kolk's work. His book, The Body Keeps the Score, is a book I can't recommend enough to people. So it's unreal to hear that he's one of the researchers leading that study. Um, that makes me even more excited to, to find out you know, more about this and to see the results when they're finalized. And as you mentioned, that it's not, they've been surprised by the results and that it's not just been about PTSD, but, but early childhood um, and complex trauma. Wow, I think there are so many possibilities. And I know if I had more hours in, in this day, I would continue talking to you and I would continue taking up your time with these kind of discussions and my questions. And I feel like I have learned so much and my, my perspective on psychedelics has shifted immensely in just, in just an hour that we've been chatting to, to a far more, I suppose I was always curious, otherwise I wouldn't have spoken to you, but even more curious now to delve into the research around this, you know, your research and based on the cult's research and, and seeing what is out there and what's being done in a controlled environment in order to bring about real change for people who've been through or are going through a lot. Um, and I, mm. I, the way that I want to, oh, um, perhaps I can just ask you if there's anything else that you'd want to add before we start to, to round up this chat. Um, yeah, I guess something that I really, I'd love to just share a little bit about is kind of where I hope or imagine that this could eventually lead. Um, I, I do some work, so I'm writing my PhD on the kind of intersection of somatic work with psychedelic work. And so this particular area is really interesting to me. Um, and the healing of early sort of early childhood wounds and things like that. And I think just something that really excites me is the kind of work that somebody that I know is doing over in Canada this is a person who I, I deeply admire and they do work with MDMA um, and another substance called 3MMC, which kind of is, is quite similar to, to MDMA in, in how it works. Um, and they're doing it in a very different way to the way that the trials are being run. So the clinical trials are very much like, you know, you see a psychotherapist for several sessions in the lead up and then um, they prepare you, they build a relationship with you, and then you have a very controlled sit where you take the MDMA, you might put on an eye shade and listen to music, and the therapist will be there in the room with you. Um, but their job is really just to provide a supportive and safe environment and to encourage you to go into the experience. So it's a very non-directive approach to, to this kind of work. Um, but what I think the somatic world has to offer here, and so a part of the reason that what they're doing is non-directive is because these medicines seem to be operating or working on the non-verbal parts of our brain, right? And so when you start to talk to someone and engage in some kind of talk therapy when they're under the influence of MDMA or some other substance, it doesn't seem to kind of touch at the, at the places that it needs to for, to support their experience. However, somatic work, body-based kind of uh, engagement seems to be touching a kind of similar place in, in a person that these drugs seem to be touching. And so there is this kind of opportunity, which I think is available to um, be a little bit more involved as a therapist or a healer in somebody's process and experience under the influence. Um, and I think Bessel actually said this himself. He was very curious about 
the possibility of, of intermingling psychodrama um, and those kinds of um, experiences with MDMA to kind of heal heal wounds from the, the past and, and things like that. So I'm just, I'm really excited about that moving forward. Um, and I wanted to share a bit about that. Now you've got me excited. I mean, that sounds absolutely fascinating. It sounds like the abilities are really endless and we're only just touching the surface at the moment when it comes to this approach to mm. Wow. Tobias, the, the last question I end off every episode with um, is to ask you what's been the most kind of surprising thing that you've learned since you started this journey, either personally or professionally? I think I, I keep getting surprised. <laughs> I'm constantly surprised. It's such a fascinating space to work with people. And um, one thing that I'm learning at the moment that is, is really alive for me as a therapist, and I think in particular when you start to engage in these kinds of medicines or with, when you're involved in that kind of space, the, the kind of natural... Uh, interweaving of my own personal history and life and social circle with the work that I do with clients and how I as a therapist am an expression of my life uh, and that's that's intersecting with the, the person in the therapeutic dynamic uh, in this really fascinating way and um, I guess I'm, I'm increasingly learning to to kind of trust my intuition as a therapist and not follow such structured kind of rules of particular therapies um, and yeah, I, I guess I'm, I'm constantly getting surprised by these magical moments where I'll have a friend tell me about something that happened, which then becomes a really um, pivotal piece of knowledge or story relevant to a therapeutic session that I might have with another client uh, and the, the sort of interconnection that, that's going on in that, in that space. Hmm. It's, it, I, can, I can literally hear the excitement in your voice and the passion um, in the, about the topic you, you, you are working with day in, day out. I can hear it. And speaking as one doctoral candidate to another, you've got to be passionate about what you do because this is with you for <laughs> several years. So you really have to be in, completely engrossed and enthused in this topic that you've decided to, to explore. And I cannot wait to read your doctoral dissertation. So when that's done, please do send it my way and I will share with my, my followers and my listeners all about it in the many years to come. I don't know how far you are into yours, but uh, I look forward to, to hearing about it in the future. And, and thank you again for giving me such incredible insight into your exper expertise and your knowledge today. Mm, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. If you enjoyed this episode, why not subscribe to this podcast and continue learning about some incredible and fascinating topics that we need to know more and talk more about. You can subscribe and follow this podcast on your favorite platform. And if you've enjoyed this episode, I'd be so grateful if you would rate and review it. Do you have a question you'd like to ask for a friend? reach out to me via my website or Instagram and I'll be sure to include it in an upcoming episode.